1: Stratford University presents Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's, as always, been an interesting week in technology. Uh, Many, many things are happening. There's a new Spanish botnet. It's one of the largest in the world that you can buy for only $2,500 a day, and it has been creating havoc around the world with distributed denial-of-service attacks. We'll go into that a bit. Microsoft is going to eliminate passwords. Um, I'm telling you, passwords were... A great idea in the beginning, but to tell you the truth, the regular guy, the regular person on the street really doesn't use very good passwords, and they tend to use the same password over and over again, so it's turned out to be a security nightmare, and people want to just say, okay, how can we get rid of passwords, and I think that's not a bad idea. We'll talk about how Microsoft is going to do that. And uh, let's look at the reasons behind the computer chip shortage. Um, <clears throat> this has been creating a lot of problems. First of all, the gamers uh, had trouble getting—not uh, the gamers, the yeah—the gamers had trouble getting video cards because of the chip shortage. And then it hit the car market. It's hard to buy a new yeah. car. I mean, it's hard to get a used car. I mean, the, there is a huge crunch because of the chip shortage, and there—and you know—they just can't produce all the cars. This week, we're going to feature the man who is the Mark Zuckerberg of Russia. Yeah. He's the Mark Zuckerberg of Russia, and he has started the equivalent of Facebook in Russian. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Adil in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk. Should I like my own Facebook posts? I've noticed that many of my friends uh, like their own posts as soon as they put them up. I mean, that seems a little vain. Is that really a good idea, Adil in Fairfax? Well, uh, actually, Adil, it's really not uh, vanity at all. It's a good idea to like your own Facebook posts. It gets to jumpstart the engagement that you receive every time you publish a post. You probably know that Facebook has an algorithm that's making it harder and harder for your posts to gain exposure. They show them to fewer and fewer people. And every time they do an algorithm update, it seems that fewer of your friends will see your posts. And the effective reach of published posts is even far worse for those who maintain a business page. Now, what's going on here, actually? They want to force you to boost your page with money they're trying to make money so they want to make the actual reach of your posts less so they can force you to spend money if you want now it turns out though that when you've got these facebook posts uh, and you and you like it it tends to um, you know it, it stimulate your friends to also like it and the more engagement you get on a post because of the algorithm that facebook has the more exposure it gets. And so it actually helps you to like your Facebook page. There's nothing vain about it. It's just a way to combat the Facebook algorithm. We got an email from John in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, I'd like to control some outside lights using Alexa. Now, then I wouldn't have to bring in an electrician and install a switch and run a wire back to the house. That could be like, it could be expensive. Is there is there a way to do it? I've, I've got these uh, strings of Edison lights. I've got th- uh, uh, basically three strings. It's uh, 45 lights, and it's, they're around 675 watts. And I'd like to control them, you know, from inside the house without a switch. Well, it's very doable, John, if you have sufficient Wi-Fi signal near the lights. Now. You can carry your uh, your iPhone, your your smartphone out there, or your laptop, and you can check the, uh, the 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 Wi-Fi signal out there, and it does penetrate into your yard quite a distance. Now, the two point four gigahertz bands will, will will penetrate walls much better, but my advice is try to line up the location so you can see your router through the window, because you get a lot better Wi-Fi signal through the window. I had a similar thing down there at. Uh, down there at the, at the Bay House, and uh, I wanted to put, uh, put lights outside. And so I went and, uh, <clears throat> and, and scanned outside my yard, and it was surprising how much the Wi-Fi signal increased when I got direct line of sight through the window. worked really well. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> In your case, I mean, when you buy a smart uh, plug, which is what you're going to get out there, you can either get a dimmer or you can just get a switch. Now, in your case, a dimmer is not going to work because you can't get a dimmer that, that supports more than 400 watts. Also, these dimmers tend to be not as reliable as you'd like. On the other hand, a switch, you're just switching on or off the 15-amp circuit. So in your case, you're going to want to have a switch. Now, the good news is these Edison lights, I know what they are. They're very dim. They don't need to be, they don't need to be um, uh, dimmed. You can just have a regular switch for them. And a switch, a Wi-Fi switch, is, you know, pretty cheap, only about $15, $16. Dimmer is more expensive than that. Now, if you've got a string of LEDs, that's going to need a dimmer because these LEDs are really bright. And you'll have to have – but, of course, the LED LEDs are going to be less than 400 watts, so you'll be able to do it. Now, I actually ordered uh, – I, I did something similar to this down at the other house. I ordered the Smart Home Wi-Fi outlet plug from Smart Home. And it's uh, 1634 uh, on Amazon. And now what I did – see, the nice thing about Amazon is that you can return this stuff. So I unpacked it very carefully. I took it out and plugged it in. I connected it to my Wi-Fi network, just test whether it would work before I kept it. Yeah, keep the packaging. I kept the packaging, Absolutely. so I've become an expert on package, on unpackage, on on opening my Wi-Fi packages <laughs> very carefully, so the original packaging, including all the little bags and plastic, is preserved. Well, I went out there, and when I set it up, it said, "Well, the Wi-Fi signal's weak, but." It worked perfectly. I set it up. It, I've never lost connection with that, and it, it works perfectly. Now the other the the thing I did because it's a smart plug, you can name it. When you when you go into the to the smart plug app, you can put a name on it. Because uh, I've these lights are around the fire pit, so I renamed my smart plug fire pit. So now I linked it to I linked that smart plug to Alexa. So now, when I want to turn on the lights at the fire pit, I just say, "Alexa, turn on fire pit," and the lights turn on. Yeah. And I can do that from anywhere in the house. Now, what I also discovered, I can also do that from Oakton if I say, because all my Alexas at all locations are connected. If I say, "Alexa, turn on fire pit," it'll turn them on down at the other house. So uh, that has worked really, really well. Uh, I originally didn't didn't. Uh, didn't realize the, the the real advantage of a straight switch. I got a dimmer the first time, and I, I could not get a dimmer that would support 675 watts. Yeah. So um, then I got a 400-watt dimmer, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. And um, and I got the instructions, and they said, do not use the dimmer for more than 400-watt load. It will destroy the dimmer. So So then I just, in that case, I simply returned it to Amazon. Yeah. And I got the switch. And it has worked perfectly ever since. I think you'll have a I think you'll have a lot of fun with that, John. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc, I just heard that I need to complete an emergency update on my iPhone. It has something to do with spyware. <laughs> but I really don't understand it. Why is this so important? How can I check whether the update's been completed? Thanks for your show. Very informative. Lily in Fairfax. Well, Lily, the emergency software patch, which uh, is being pushed out immediately to update all all iPhones and, and all Macs because hackers have figured out some novel ways to break into your iPhone or your iPad or your Mac. And it's becoming more common. Researchers raised the alarm about this dangerous iPhone vulnerability uh, just last week. It turns out the Israeli spyware company, NSO Group, which sells a program for governments to remotely take over people's smartphones and computers, has figured out a new way to basically break into practically any Apple device by sending a fake GIF image to iMessage. And you don't even click on the image, but as soon as that image is displayed on your screen, the malicious code embedded within the image takes over your phone. You don't do anything.
0: That's really frightening, because un- until now, you had to do something knuckle-headed, like you you to, know, click on a link. That's you right. Know,
2: you had to do nothing. Or attempt
0: to download something. That's wow. right. Yeah. And
2: uh, this this particular uh, software, it's Pergases, and it's uh, written, uh, you know, produced by the NSO Group, that three Former military guys in the Israeli military, who were very steeped into uh, cybersecurity, formed this company, and they've been selling this app all over the world. And it is just—it's uh, dangerous. Uh, now you can check whether you've got the latest update. You—the uh, the update that they're pushing out is 14.8. So simply go to settings, and then after settings, go to general. And then in the general page, you'll see at the top, software update. Click on that, and it will tell you whether you've got the latest version. Now, if you set your phone for automatic updates, chances are you've got it. But there is some delay, even if it's set for automatic update, because they can't download it to everyone. So they sort of put you in a sequence. So I logged on this last week because I I wanted to get the update right away. I I see it right here, right
0: now, and I'm going to do it even as we sit here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm doing it right now. So I went and
2: just pushed to do the update (laughs) because, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll eventually get it, but I think right now, so they're trying to update so many people, and so this... This is going to be a theme that we talk about this week, uh, Lily, about how former military intelligence people have gone to the other side and start making uh, spyware. And it's almost like uh, cybersecurity mercenaries have become the new arms dealers. We'll Mm, talk about that mm. at length later in the show. We got an email from Tina in Cleveland Dear Doc, I've noticed that the lights on my modem are always blinking, even when I'm not doing anything. Uh, You know, I'm trying to figure: is there something wrong with my with my router? Uh, Is this normal? Uh, Should I do anything to fix it, or should should I be worried? Tina in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, there's always data, Tina. There's always data passed between your computer and the internet. Anytime you're establish an internet, anytime you establish a connection to the internet. Now, really normal to see the data lights flashing. Chances are your ISP, Internet Service Provider, is responsible for much of that blinking when you're not using it because they're just checking in. They're just checking the connection to make sure your connection is alive and healthy and, you know, check out your router. And so they, they might be pinging you on, you know, on a, on a, on a regular basis. You also – you're also you're, – uh, your internet un- is also being pinged by botnets and hackers all the time, trying to find open security ports. So they're always they're always doing these IP address scans and coming in. If you've got uh, if you got the firewall correctly configured, it won't get past the router. And then of course you've got malware or antivirus software installed on your on your devices. You'll be okay. I actually have the firewall on the router set up. plus I configure the firewall on my um, on my laptops. So I got double firewall protection. but but that does generate traffic when they try to ping you to see if you've got any open ports. And there's also some software that's always going back and just automatically checks for updates. You know, like you've got your computer. it goes it checks to Microsoft. is is there a new update available? And are always so there is some traffic that's generated. So, so uh, this, uh, this traffic that you see is is not a problem, um, and uh, don't worry about it. We got an email from Lois in Erie. Dear Tech Talk, I'm worried about going to a website with malware in, and infecting my computer. How can I tell if a page has malware, and what can I do if I, if I land on one? Well, this is becoming increasingly a problem. Uh, because they're all everybody's trying to hack you. They've got these hackers that they now have malware that can install on your computer just by going to a website. You don't have to do anything, but there are certain telltale signs whenever you show up on a website that 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 you were where you really expect there might be malware. For instance, if you click on a link and you're expecting to land on a particular page and and you and it shows up as a different page or as a link you didn't expect, like you're. Expecting to go to the bank, and you show up to a um, a page which is selling you something. I mean, that could be that you you could have malware embedded there. That's that that's kind of a link. Or if you click on a link, and as soon as you got onto the page, your computer freezes up. It won't respond to any mouse clicks or presses. Or, but isn't it too late at that point? Not, well, not it's not too late yet. Because uh-huh. it's still working. It's still working. Yeah, Not too late yet. It could be too late if you if you just wait. Or you might have a web page that says, oh, your, your computer is infected by Oh, um, yeah, you malware. get those all the time. Call yeah. Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call Apple. <laughs> right, absolutely. That's just a fake. Or <laughs> or you've got a message that pops up and says you have to pay ransomware to predict your files being encrypted. Or you notice anything strange happening. So what you do, as soon as you go to a web page and you notice anything that is unusual, turn mm-hmm. off the computer. Mm-hmm. Don't hit the back button. Turn off the computer. Now, try to try to turn it off the normal way through the, through the, the menu system. But if even that is locked up, just hold the power button and turn it off. Uh, and <clears throat> then when you bring the computer back up again, run an antivirus scan. If you don't do anything and just turn off the computer quickly – Uh, the page typically will not have time to install everything. Now, if you hit the back button, that just might be what they're waiting for to enable the install. Oh, wow. So don't hit the back button. Just turn off the computer. But that was really a good question because we're getting more and more of those kind of questions regarding malware and cybersecurity, and it's, it's our world these days. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at at Stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we'll learn about the Mark Zuckerberg of Russia in just a
1: moment on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, The Internet and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
2: D-U-R-O-V, Derov. No, Pavel Derov. Sorry, my glasses are fogging up here. It's such an exciting profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tea. such an
0: exciting topic, yeah.
2: <laughs> Pavel Derov. Now, Pavel a he's a Russian-born entrepreneur who is best known for being founder of the social networking site VK, which is the Russian Facebook, and of Telegram Messenger. Pavel the Rolf was born October 10, 1984, in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, but spent most of his childhood in Turin, Italy, where his father was employed. He attended Italian elementary school, and he returned to Russia in 2001 to attend the academic gymnasium in St. Petersburg. In 2006, he graduated from the philology department, of st petersburg state university where he received a first class degree philology that that sort of traces back the the roots of languages the linkages between languages and so they look at text and they Trace the whole historical framework of language. I had to look that up. But philology is not a word that I use frequently.
0: Right. It's a big. <laughs> it's a big science out in the Russian sphere. It really is. Yeah. It's something people go through. Maybe it's like their version of philosophy degree. If you don't know what else you want
2: to do with your life. It could be. Yeah. Could be the. Could be the Russian gen ed program. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so Durov uh, started the uh, Kontakti. The Kontakti. Short VK, it's short, it's short for VK in 2006. VKontakte, which was essentially, uh, influ- which was influenced by Facebook. It, had, it was Facebook-like. Now, VKontakte means in contact with. I'm surprised that the Russian word is so close to... Contact, actually.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those universal Latin things that got into all the European it languages. It is. Yeah. It
2: is. Now, he's known because he started VKontakte as the Mark Zuckerberg of Russia. Now, while he and his brother Nikolai ran VK, that's short for VKontakte, they ran the VK website. The company grew to about $3 billion in value, which isn't bad when you, you know, you're know you sitting there in Russia. In 2011, he – but the problem is he's in Russia. And they don't like a free Facebook. So in 2011, he was involved in a standoff with the police in St. Petersburg when the government demanded that he remove posts of the opposition politicians' pages after the 2011 election to the Duma. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) They're they're trying to use social media to influence politics. Who would have thought? Derof posted a picture of a dog with his tongue out wearing a hoodie. He refused to open the door, <laughs> and the police left after an hour when he— uh, Which is actually
0: surprising that they didn't just break down the door. It
2: is surprising. I, yeah. In 2012, Derof posted a picture of himself with— Extending his middle finger. Which is which,
0: another universal language, It's a, by the it's a universal language, <laughs> yes, even is. in Russia. Yeah.
2: And calling it his official response to <laughs> Mail.ru Group's efforts to buy VK. Now, <clears throat> Mail.ru, it's an, it's an email company that's, that's run by the Russian government. In December 13, Dorof decided to sell his 12% to Ivan Tavrin, Friend of his, he 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 owned 12 percent. It turned out at the time that 40 percent of the company was in fact owned by Mail.ru, and 48 percent was held by the Capital Partners United Capital Partners Investment Group. It turned out that later, this was a scheme. A scheme. Tavrin sold his shares to Mail.ru. So if you look how that adds up, mail.ru, which is owned by the Russian government, had 40 percent. with the 12 percent of his 12 percent, they then had 52 yeah. percent, controlling interest. So you, you can see where this is going. yeah, okay? Yeah. <laughs> in, in 2014, Dorof submitted his resignation to the board. Uh, and, uh, and this was, you know, after mail.ru had the um, majority shares. Uh, and, uh, and this was believed to be in relation to the Ukrainian crisis because he was posting pro-Ukrainian data on the, um, on the VK uh, Facebook page. And that uh, that Ukrainian uh, crisis started in February of that year. Because,
0: the, by the way, in Ukraine, which you know they speak Russian, uh, many people do, uh-huh. but also Ukrainian, it's very popular, as popular as in Russia. It's it's used in uh, Belarus too. I think in all of the Slavic countries that used to be in part of the Soviet Union. Well wow. VK yeah. is. Yeah, VK is used in the Ukraine as well. Wow, so yeah. it,
2: it it was it the, he could really make a political statement there. Yeah. Now in. Uh, in uh, in 2014, he refused to hand over data of the Ukrainian protesters because the protesters apparently been uh, had been uh, using Facebook pages, and the Russian security wanted all their names, and uh, and they wanted him to block the page of Alexei Navalny. Navalny. Yeah. And uh, on on VK, he refused to do it. So instead of doing what the Russian security wanted, he posted the relevant order on his own VK page, and he claimed that the requests were unlawful. He just posted their demands on his page and said they're unlawful. As you would expect, on uh, April 21st of 2014, Deroff was dismissed as CEO of VK. The company claimed he was acting on the letter of resignation a month earlier, that he had failed to recall. Now, Durov then claimed the company had been effectively taken over by Vladimir Putin's allies, suggesting his ouster was the result of both his refusal to hand over personal details of users to federal law enforcement agency as well as his involvement in the Ukraine. Durov left Russia... And stated they had no plans to go back, and that the country was incompatible with the internet business at the moment. Upon leaving Russia, Dorof uh, obtained a citizenship at, in Saint Kitts Island, and he uh, do, by donating two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the company's sugar industry diversification foundation. Now. He secured $300 million in cash from a Swiss bank account. Apparently, he had acc- accumulated quite a bit of cash while he was in Russia.
0: So he was really thinking all along about the possibilities yeah. here.
2: Yeah. I think so. He was clever. And yeah, so, yeah. And he didn't leave the money in Russian banks. Absolutely. It was in Swiss bank account. Mm-hmm. Now, this allowed him to focus on creating his next company, Telegram Messaging, which was focused on encrypted messaging service of the same name. You see, he, was, uh, he, he felt that encrypted messaging that could keep you away from the eyes of the state were very important. So he th- that was so good. This is a
0: similar narrative to what we just discussed about WhatsApp last week. It's, it's this very similar idea, like th- this is what's
2: motivating them. That's right. Yeah. This, it's, he's really altruistic. He's not really after money. He's trying to actually achieve something of good. Now, the company was headquartered in Berlin and it later moved to Dubai. Later he tried to launch Graham Cryptocurrency, uh, which never apparently went, and I'd never heard of it, w- went everywhere. And, and the TON platform, he raised uh, 1.7 billion dollars from investors, and including some money from the widow of Steve Jobs, Jobs. Now, however, these two actions were halted by the SEC and the, and the U.S. federal courts. They did not want to have these two uh, IPOs go forward, I think, because they're afraid of Russian influence, apparently. Now, he was listed on Forbes Billionaire's List in 2021 with a net worth of $17 billion. His fortune is largely driven by his ownership of Telegram. So you think about this. They stripped him of everything in Russia on VK. Mm -hmm. He started another company at St. Kitts, and it's now worth $17 billion. Yeah. I mean, that's resilience. That is resilience. Now, it's April 2021. Durov uh, is the 112th richest person in the world. He's a self-described, well you'd expect this, libertarian. He's a teetotaler and he's a vegetarian. Uh-huh. He's got all the he's got all all, <laughs> the, all three all three legs of that stool right <laughs> taken care of. In 2012 he published his manifesto which described which is described by commentators as libertarianism dealing with his ideas on improving Russia. He still wants to improve Russia. I mean, he's he's loyal to Russia. He just thinks the government's bad. Yeah. So and he's it, a patriot. And he's he loves a patriot. His country. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for his 21st birthday, he donated a million dollars to the Wikimedia Foundation, and uh, and of course, it's a um, it it it's based on the libertarian views of Wikipedia is also libertarian, and so that that was in alignment with what he did. He claims to live an aesthetic lifestyle. You know, where he he basically has very few physical possessions, lives a simple life. He promotes freedom of property. In August 2014, DeRoof was named- No, you a- should
0: say freedom from property. Freedom right? from, from property. property. Yeah, yeah, that's a big difference. And it's very remarkable that a billionaire is just doing that, right?
2: Yeah, yeah he's just not motivated with money. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I I had never really knew about him that much. until. No, this week. neither have I. I started looking looking at all- like, I, So I got interested in all the encrypted communication things trying to- trying to protect us from the hackers, and I sort of stumbled onto him. In August of 2014, Dorof was named the most promising Northern European leader under 30. In 2018, Fortune magazine included Dorof as the 40 under 40 list, an annual ranking of the most influential young people in business. So there you go. Everything you'd wanted to know about Pavel Dorof, the... uh, founder of the social networking vk and telegram messenger and the russian mark zuckerberg
0: yeah and we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have observations from the faculty lounge so come on in take a seat and listen to some pearls of wisdom from doc in just a moment
1: if it's technology it's tech talk radio it trends software the internet and it careers More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio, IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Church of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech
2: Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for Observations from the Faculty Lounge. You see, I've escaped the bunker now, and I'm just sitting in here in my cardigan sweater in the faculty lounge enjoying myself. And this week's show really pulled together a lot of strings for me, and I realized that the cyber mercenaries that are being created within government's intelligence agencies have become the latest arms dealers.
0: You know, and I just want to tell people, really pay attention. to This is not a story that people know, I don't think— and uh, it's a little scary, people going rogue, people that you would trust with national security secrets. And all of a sudden they go into <clears> a whole different side of what
2: they know uh, to do. I know. It's, uh, and, and, and we've made ourselves particularly vulnerable to them because we are so integrated with the Internet. Uh, we have cell phones that have uh, text messaging. They've got microphones. They've got, they've got cameras. And all that's accessible We have uh, smart home devices like Alexa in the house that have speakers and microphones. We have smart TVs that have microphones and speakers. Um, All of these can be hacked, and they can intrude on our privacy. And what has happened, there's a class of hackers that have learned how to do this, and they're using that to help um, rogue countries track dissidents. But it could be used for a lot more than that. So I think we've sort of set ourselves up to be vulnerable and now we're paying the price. So earlier this week, the Department of Justice revealed that three former U.S. intelligence operatives are facing federal charges in connection with their work for Dark Matter, a foreign cybersecurity company based in the United Arab Emirates. The men who formerly worked for the National Security Agency, were part of a secretive operation called Project Raven, which between 2016 and 2019 helped the UAE government spy on critics of its regime. The Hackers for Hire helped the Middle Eastern monarchy break into computer systems and devices throughout the world, including ones located in the U.S. The idea that a former national security operative is targeting U.S. systems at the behest of a foreign government, pretty chilling scenario. The Raven incident shows that there are few constraints on U.S.-based companies that want to sell powerful powerful cyber weapons to foreign governments. Now, the Dark Matter originally collaborated with an American cyber firm, Denver-based, Acuvant, and they bought from Acuvant a $1.6 million iPhone hacking tool that was used for the subsequent uh, hacking escapades. Also compounding the scandal is one of the accused is Daniel Gariki. He is currently employed as the chief information officer of ExpressVPN – one of the most widely used privacy products of its kind and in the, the market. And the one
0: you love. It's the, the one, one I love. You've talked about it for
2: years. And he, and they hired him. This feels like a personal betrayal now. It is. I thought, man. Right. Now, this this thing, this company. Now, now ExpressVPN defended this decision. They said that uh, Daniel Garricky had told them everything, and they knew it. And they just wanted to hire a guy that was skilled in the art craft of uh, hacking. And so when they hired him back in 2019, this was after he had finished the escapade there over for the UAE. <clears throat> and they still think he's a good hire, but, but, but who knows? You go from one side to the other side to the other side, it's really hard to keep track of what's going on. And then we've got the other instance of this NSO group. Now, this was started by three individuals in, um, who worked for Israeli intelligence these these three guys, the N, NSO, by the way, is this, is are the are the initials of their three first names NSO, and um, and they uh, and they have been they're selling a powerful device compromising malware that uh, that that they sell that they give actually they sell to repressive regimes throughout the world. The software is sold the is only sold to governments as they say, and this. And this is the thing. The sale must be approved by the Israeli government because the Israeli government classifies this software as a weapon, according to the NSO Group. But people have been tracking this. Remember when the uh, Saudi Arabia murdered Kasaki in the, uh, in the uh, Turkish embassy and then cut him up and carried him out? The Pergasa software that had been produced by the NSO Group had been installed on all of Kasaki's friends, and that's what enabled them to know exactly where he was and where to attack. Oh, wow. You know, and um, the, in fact, the Pergassus Project, uh, it was an investigation, uh, you know, conducted by nonprofits. They investigated um, <clears throat> how much this Pergassus has pervaded the world, and they revealed that there are almost 50,000 political targets of Pergassus when they, were, when they found some databases. And this includes phones of dignitaries, diplomats, as well as the French leader, uh, Macron. Um, They have devices belonging to other presidents, foreign prime ministers, the king of Morocco. It's all over the place. Now, this Pergasa software, which was put out by the NSO group, this was what prompted the emergency uh, update on the Apple phone. Because they had a new attack vector using iMessage. So you mean
0: the one I'm downloading
2: right the now? The one you're downloading to... now was specifically. And, and by the
0: way, 25 minutes into the thing, yeah. and I've just got the little white line that's oh. filling in right now. It's taken that long to just to prepare the the install. Now that's yeah. yeah. And,
2: and so what happened was they these guys have they've got these zero day exploits. These are exploits that are unknown. There's no there's no protection against them. So what does the term zero day mean? It means you've got z- zero days to. Um, to prepare a defense, it's you, nobody knows about it.
0: So the minute it they invent it or whatever, they put it to use.
2: They put it to use, yeah. And the and the user has no, no defense, right. At all, right? And uh, whereas if uh, and so, hacking organizations are always looking for undiscovered uh, vulnerabilities, which they call zero day vulnerabilities, okay. undiscovered vulnerabilities. And the Pegasus group has about six or seven attack vectors and they just try them all to see what gets in mm-hmm. and so the latest attack vector was using this uh, gif image uh, this iMessage vulnerability but they'll use any of the apps on your phone they, they can go into and they can compromise so if you've got iMessage you might you, you might have a pdf program so all of these programs and the more programs you have give more attack vectors into your phone and these guys have just become skilled.
0: But well, what are they getting out of this? Because this isn't like a – you know, they're not ransomware. Um, they're not controlling our speech mm-hmm. or anything like a government would do they're,
2: something. It's purely mercenary. And they're it's selling the malicious, soft, right? They're selling the software yeah. to governments. Uh-huh. And then the NSR group says, well, you know, we didn't do anything. Yeah. They told us that they were only going to do it to fight terrorism. Okay, this is – I went to the NSO website, the Israeli website, and their whole focus is let's fight the terrorists. So I think in the beginning, this might have been the motivation to try to fight terrorism, especially out of Israel. But but then you always have this um, balance between security and privacy. And over time as I guess the terrorism threat became less, they still had to make money, so then they started selling it to these governments. Wow. And then they pretend that they don't know what was done with it, you know. And these were all people that were former intelligence agents. I I think it's a problem. Now, you know, the the, the patch that we talked about earlier is 14.8. You really want to install that so you don't have any zero-day exploits from Pergasus. Now, it was never easy to understand the full scope of hackers for higher industry. I mean, we've long relied on clues, but it's becoming harder to find those clues. For one thing, because of encrypted messaging. Law enforcement can't keep track of what's going on with all these encrypted messages like like Telegram or like like WhatsApp. And the stealthy new arsenal of zero-day exploits make it really difficult to keep up with these hacking companies. And it's very hard for intelligence agencies to hold these guys accountable. These are completely unregulated companies. And I think what's going to have to happen, like, for instance, these three these guys that went to UAE and started doing that hacking, they were not given any criminal charges. They were fined $1.6 million that they're paying off. Now, I think there should have been some criminal activity some right, criminal charges. Otherwise,
0: they're just. This is just part of their cost of operating. Yeah, I mean, it's just. Yeah. It,
2: it's just a slap on the wrist. <laughs> yeah. And so, so what we have to do is we. Now there was one spyware company that made a, a spyware called Spyphone, and it was particularly bad. Uh, and the FTC basically outlawed that company from operating in the U.S. So that's was the first actions taken on the regulatory bunch, but on the regulatory uh, arena. But I think we're going to have to start regulating this because I'm telling you, as, as citizens, we're vulnerable because we've got all the Alexas in our house, we've got smartphones, and these are smart TVs, they're all hackable. And like the intelligence agencies, they can take a smart TV which has a microphone and they can listen in on the conversation around that TV. And, uh, you know, so we are vulnerable. Uh, so convenience of the internet and convenience of interaction has created a vulnerability. So I didn't realize the extent of it until I started looking at all of the interlocking webs. So there you go. The cyber for hire hackers have become the new arms agents, arms uh, uh, arms dealers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, Doc. Well, third period is over. It's time for history class and we'll take a break just before so we can uh, take seats in our new um, classroom. Oh. Okay.
1: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio, IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about um, the development of modern radar. This is the history lesson of the week. Now, what is interesting about the development of technology, frequently it takes much longer uh, development cycle than people realize. It starts out slow and gradually re- receives some acceptance, and then, it, but it's much slower than you would expect. Now, radar stands for radio detection and ranging. Uh, radar sends out a little pulse. It's reflected back from an object. You measure the delay time for the, for the reflected pulse to come back, and that gives you the range. And so it's radio detection and ranging. It's now the now the science, the raw science behind radar was discovered in the 19th century by Henrik Hertz. Now, he, although he he demonstrated in the radio lab, in his lab that radio waves could be reflected off solid objects. Um, so he knew that you could reflect radio waves from things, but he didn't do anything with it in any kind of meaningful way. Then in 1895, Alexander Popov Developed a radar-based device that was used to detect lightning strikes. So he would just aim it out in a storm, and they would, uh, and he he could detect the lightning. He could bounce off the lightning event, and he could detect lightning strikes. But what he discovered when he was looking at lightning that was out over the water, that he would also get signals back from ships that were between the lightning strike and him. And so then he discovered sort of inadvertently that you could detect ships with radar. It was really interesting. And, and, he, wrote, uh, and he, he wrote a paper and said he could detect ships. But there just wasn't that much, uh, much interest in it. In 1917, Nikolai Tesla, who's, uh, who's the, um, who's, who was Elon Musk's hero, who he named Tesla after, he outlined research on how radar could be used to detect ships and their speed. Now, in 1922, Hoyt pitched this idea using a 60 megahertz radar system to the Navy. They said, man, this would really be great, 1922. And the the, the Navy said, they're really not interested. (laughs) There was no interest. Uh, uh, But they eventually became interested when they realized that this technology could detect aircraft. Because big destroyer, you don't want bombers coming toward you. You want to detect aircraft. So around the the, the the research on radar really picked up in the 1930s when Robert M. Page, who worked at a naval research laboratory here in Washington, he demonstrated the, pul- the first pulse-based radar system, and it worked like a champ. And as soon as he developed this at NRL and they were going to apply it to uh, aircraft, they started investing heavily in radars. Now, by the time World War II came around in the in the 40s, all the countries were working on radars, and so it um, it it really took off then. But you can see this was almost a 70 year cycle of development on, on on radars, and that's just sort of typically how things go when you come when you start developing technology. You get the you, you discover the principles, and then you try to then you later you find an application. Now have you ever heard of something called um, let's see the the QCAT. This is back from the nineties. No, I don't remember the QCAT. The QCAT. This I remember a QCAT. I it uh, I always like to buy gadgets. I bought a QCAT. So actually.
0: spelled C-U-E, by the way, the Q cat. The, yes. the
2: Q cat, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, this this actually was a product that predated QR codes. Now, you, right now, we use QR codes for advertising. You point your cell phone at the QR code, and it'll bring up a website. Yeah. So that's so it's used typically for advertising. There will be QR codes, and QR stands for quick response. There'll Although, be- as you warned us,
0: do not you know scan QR codes you find like on a, a lamppost somewhere in exactly. the city. Exactly. Do not do that <laughs> because because people
2: just put up QR codes and send you to a malicious website. Yeah. yeah so you want to you, <laughs> you want to a- sort of be pay attention yeah. to where that QR code exactly. is sending you. Exactly. So. <clears throat> Back in the late '90s, somebody had an idea that you could scan basically a barcode, and it and and it could take your computer to a uh, to a website, and then you could just like the QR code does now. So they they developed this little this little Q and it looks like a little plastic cat, and in the front is there's a red light, and um, and it basically is a barcode scanner. And so what you would do, you'd find some advert, you'd plug this thing into the into your computer. And then you would scan the barcode with your uh, with the Qcat, and it would take the computer to a particular web page. Now <clears throat> now they had proprietary software for the the scan. And it never really was very popular because first of all, who wants to you know, you want to scan something? You've got to crank up the computer, bring it over to your computer. You've got to use the proprietary software of Qcat. And then also QCat had a serial number. They could track what you were scanning. People were worried about privacy. So it just never took off. It was just not convenient. It actually wasn't until the advent of the mobile phone that QR codes really took off. Because now somebody puts out something that you scan. You don't have to drag it to a computer. You just open up the camera on your phone and you scan it. And it became extremely easy.
0: I mean, it got easier because at first we'd have to download some sort of app. Yeah. And put it on our phone, right? so we could scan it through the app. And now the cameras are all just set, preset, to recognize a QR code and immediately direct you to where you know, exactly. it takes you. Exactly. I mean, yeah.
2: you you go to a restaurant, and instead of giving you a menu, you got a QR code on the table. Yeah,
0: and you just grab your phone and take a, a picture. Just right that in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so QR
2: codes definitely found their way. And QCAT sort of was a precursor of that, mm. but they ended up going bankrupt uh, and wasting $185 million worth of investment capital. Wow. Back in the nineteen nineties. And I have to admit, I bought a QCAD, but you tried to help him. I'd, I'd, <laughs> you, tried to I keep, really, you tried to keep him in business, didn't I you? I really did my yeah. best. Now, let me talk about this powerful Spanish botnet. Now, so what a botnet is, is a uh, it's a it's it's a um, it's like a it's like a robot that's under control of some central person. And so people will take over your computer and they'll install this bot on your computer and they can then direct it to do things. So what they'll do, they'll, they'll, put the, they'll install the software on your computer and with these particular botnets, the command that they give is send a lot of traffic to this particular website. You might just make. A, you might just make. A, you. You could either be TCP traffic, UDP traffic. It could be just web traffic, where you just basically go to that website with your browser, and it it basically tells this computer just go in there and just start pinging that particular IP address. So
0: that's one of those denial of service attacks. That's right. So yeah. what
2: they have, they have forty nine thousand of these bots, all over the internet. Now the bots could be. Say your smart webcam at home, any smart devices they could, they could, and so really the smart devices that people have at home, the webcams, the uh, the uh, the door, the smart doorbells, all of these things can be hacked, and can be clients on the botnet. They can also hack servers. They love to hack servers because they can, they can get more out there. So they try to break into anybody's computer they can. They try to break in any server they can, any smart devices they can, and and accumulate this network of bots. And they have 49,000 bots on, on this particular network, and it's available for hire. So if there's some guy down the street and you just don't like his website because he's competing with you, you can pay $2,500 a day and have this botnet attack his website and just bring him down. Wow. And so this is a distributed denial-of-service attack, and they can generate, this is how much traffic they generate, two terabytes of data per second. And that's a world record for botnet traffic, two terabytes per second. It all originates from Spain, and uh, and it was initially directed at the gaming industry, because a lot of these guys, they just got fed up with the the gamers. Got fed up with them, so they just don't like what they're doing. They just bring them down. But
0: here's my question: How do you advertise this service? Is it on the dark web? I mean, it would be on the dark. Yeah, web. you wouldn't just Google it and find.
2: No, no, it would be. It <laughs> would be. Is that going to
0: pop up in the corner of your homepage when you're looking at something? That's right. And so <laughs> okay. it's called
2: distributed denial of service yeah. because what happens they it they they make so many requests to a website that it cannot. Respond to all those requests.
0: Right, you're shutting so down. So, if a
2: legitimate request comes in, yeah, it's not met. So they're so it's denial of service.
0: Absolutely, because
2: they're overwhelming the buffers, and it's distributed in that it's distributed across forty nine thousand bots. So you got to block forty nine thousand locations for it to come in. So it's it's very hard to work against, and uh, and there are just a few companies that can handle. This type of distributed denial of service attack. But what was surprising to me was that it was available. It's so cheap. 2500 for, oh, for two days usage, even cheaper, 2500 for two days. So there, and it's coming so from the,
0: That's the quick nickels uh, variety of, you know, business model.
2: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Now let's talk about this Microsoft eliminating passwords. This is kind of an interesting uh well, actually, let's talk about the computer chip shortage. I don't, I don't have enough time the, to talk yeah, about and authenticators because
0: that is really affecting a lot of things. And like we said, the car industry, which it's, is a huge thing, right it's now, affecting. So. The,
2: yeah, so we're right in the middle of this massive yeah. chip shortage. And so, uh, <clears throat> and you've probably noticed, you know, the gamers can't get graphic cards. The car production is being delayed. Right now, there are two reasons driving this. First of all, was COVID and the se- and semiconductors like most products are made by workers in the factory and because these workers were prompted to stay at home or on a limited schedule for months during the f- for the first half of 2020 production of chips grew to a crawl and our basically backlog was eliminated that is combined with the fact that overall the demand for chips has gone up because of the all the all the home the, the the whole pandemic changed the demand profile for devices so now we even have more demand than we had before but it takes like three to four years to build a new chip manufacturing factory so the capacity is going to take a while to to build up now so the combination of lack of capacity and then the pandemic during the first half 2020 brought about this chip shortage I mean, it's forced Apple to delay the, the release of the iPhone. According to the CEO of the chip-making company Stem ST Micro, this chip availability shortage is going to continue until the first half of 2023. And that's a real problem because, I mean, I, I know people that are trying to buy new cars. Now you try to buy a new car. They just charge you the sticker price. There, there's no negotiating now because it's a, it's a shortage.
0: Right, and and the cars have actually been built. I've seen pictures of of them stacked, you know, in lots because that that's one of the last things they end up putting in. So the car has been assembled. Yes, and they actually have assembled cars that are lacking this one component at this point and are unsalable.
2: And then what Elon Elon Musk did for Tesla, because he couldn't get the new chips, he rewrote all of his software to support, to support. Old chips that he had in stock.
0: Oh, he was thinking. Uh, yeah, he was so thinking. He's been doing it.
2: <laughs> Listen, we love uh, we love your emails. Email us at Tech at Stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And check out the programs that Stratford University has. Go to www.stratford.edu, and when you call Stratford, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.